0: JODcast. Cheaper than a mission to Mars. With George Bendo, Claire Bretherton, Fiona Healy, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison and Mark Perver. The JODcast, October 2014 edition. Hello and welcome to the JODcast. I'm Mark and presenting with me today are George and Fiona.
1: Hello. Hi Mark. In the show this time, Mark interviews Dr. Alan Duffy about simulating the first galaxies, Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the October night sky, and we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Indy with this month's news.
2: In the news this month, complex molecules and clear skies. One of the big questions that often comes up when astronomy and astrophysics are mentioned is, is there life out there? While the search for extraterrestrial life has sparked the imagination of countless people from astronomers to science fiction authors, and even spawned a serious scientific organisation, which is SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, most attempts focus on detecting some sort of signal indicative of cogent forms in another star system, or even another galaxy. The only such possible detection we know of occurred on the 15th of August 1977, in the context of a SETI project. The WOW signal, as it is known, was detected by the Big Ear Radio Telescope at Ohio State University. A strong radio signal lasting 72 seconds, which was the equivalent length of the scanning window, and centred on 1.4 gigahertz, was picked up, with a peak signal-to-noise ratio of about 30. Many signs pointed to this being extraterrestrial in origin, but the signal was never detected again. However, A different kind of radio detection has recently raised the possibility of there being life in our galaxy, just maybe not as we know it. Astronomers from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Germany and Cornell University in the US have announced the detection of an unusual, complex carbon-based molecule in a giant interstellar gas cloud. Located some 27,000 light-years away, the gas-rich star-forming region Sagittarius B2 was found to emit spectral lines corresponding to complex carbon-based molecules. The team used the ALMA submillimeter telescope array in the Atacama Desert to study the various emission lines present in the extremely large and dense gas cloud, which was previously found to contain other complex molecules. While 180 different molecules have already been detected in the interstellar medium as a whole, the largest of these have all been organic, with what is known as a straight-chain carbon backbone which is to say that the carbon atoms in the molecule all link up in a straight line, and do not branch out. For the first time, these astronomers have detected branched carbon molecules, specifically a branched alkyl known as isopropyl cyanide, which has a chemical formula of C3H7CN. According to the astrochemical models used by the scientists, the observed molecules are produced on the surface of icy dust grains by the addition of radicals to simple molecules via various reactions. The reason scientists are hailing this as a landmark detection is due to the fact that the branch structure seen here is a characteristic property of amino acids, which are complex molecules which form the building blocks of proteins necessary for life. Such molecules have previously been encountered in meteorites that have landed on Earth, but it was unsure whether the right conditions were present in intercellar space for the formation of amino acids and other branched carbon molecules. Now, the possibility is very much alive, no pun intended, that such molecules may be produced very early in the star formation process. The scientists involved in the study are hopeful that amino acids and other such branched carbon molecules will be detected in the near future, as the sensitivity and resolution of radio telescopes continues to improve. Perhaps one day we will have evidence of the chemical, rather than electromagnetic variety, that life elsewhere in the cosmos truly does exist. In other news, clear skies and space weather of a different kind. Astronomers have detected the smallest exoplanet that contains water in its atmosphere so far. The planet, roughly the size of Neptune, is known by the designation HATP11b and was studied using the Hubble and Spitzer space telescopes to measure the variation of its parent star's light as it transited across. The spectrum of the light during the transit was closely studied, And although the occurrence of water vapor in exoplanet atmospheres is fairly common, the researchers were surprised to find that the planet's atmosphere was also cloud free, a first for this type of exoplanet. Studying the absorption spectra of hydrogen and oxygen in the atmosphere of the planet, they saw that the intensity of the observed signal meant that the skies were clear as far as Hubble could see. This is in contrast to previous spectral observations of other exoplanet atmospheres, which have revealed very little information due to a thick, cloudy atmosphere always being present. In the case of HATP-11b, the location of the water in the atmosphere points towards a planetary model of a gassy planet with a rocky or icy core. Future observations of other exoplanets hope to reveal more cases of good weather in the future and may enable scientists to finally find that holy grail of an Earth-sized planet containing water. Thanks
3: for that, Indy. Now Mark interviews ex-JBCA PhD student Dr. Alan Duffy about simulations of the earliest galaxies and his burgeoning fame down under.
0: Today I'm interviewing Dr. Alan Duffy, who used to be here at the George Brandt Centre for Astrophysics and now works at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia. So welcome back.
4: Thanks for having me. How long's it been? Five years, almost like to the day. Really? Wow. Yeah, that's terrifying that I think about it. I thought we might start at the
0: beginning. So you did your PhD here. I thought you were going to go hard school and go right back to the Big Bang. Oh yeah, you you were, (laughs) (laughs) the Big Bang happened and then a few billion years intervened and you
4: were born and then you found your calling in astronomy. These are clearly the highlights for the cosmos, right? Big Bang, (laughs) (laughs) 36 million years later, Duffy's born. Yeah, (laughs) okay.
0: That does give an interesting insight into your mindset though, so it's for you. (laughs) That was what you said, I was quoting you, man. Okay, but it's, cosmology was what you were yes. was studying and yep. how did you how did you go about investigating cosmology
4: so i had a supervisor at doctor or a professor now i think richard batty here at jill yeah i guess i investigated the 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 universe which i guess is the job description of cosmologists two main ways that uh, first was to try to measure the big properties of the universe essentially how much stuff is in it you know, the properties of dark energy, this mysterious force seems to be accelerating the expansion of the universe and various other cool parameters like that using radio telescopes. Essentially, you map out the galaxies across the universe and through something uh, not too far from black magic, you can actually <laughs> weigh the universe. It's, it's big properties like the amount of mass it contains, even the uh, some of the properties of the dark matter particle, this mysterious new type of mass that outweighs the stuff that you and I, the stars are made of, the baryons, by at least a factor of five. So this is a very important part of the universe, which we don't know much about, but we can actually test the exact particle nature, or the candidate particles for dark matter, based on where the galaxies lie. This, to me, just still never gets in, like you know mundane. I just still can't get my head around that. So that was one part of my PhD, and the second was to take those numbers and feed that into a supercomputer simulation. This is uh, essentially the way a lot of us do astronomy these days, which isn't to look at the stars necessarily, but it's actually to try to recreate a model universe on a supercomputer. And uh, it's akin to baking a cake. The the baking a cake analogy is you have your ingredients list, and that's, in this case, dark matter, dark energy, uh, and gas, hydrogen, helium, the stuff that you and I are made of. Well, not much helium, but anyway um, and then we have a uh, a recipe, which is our uh, essentially our list the list of physics that we think is important in forming a galaxy, so this can be anything from the uh the way the material is distributed just after the big bang to how do stars form and die and and they have this spectacular supernova explosions that turns out to be important for forming a galaxy, so you throw it you have your ingredients, you follow your recipe. Uh, your analogy is getting a bit stretched here, but your oven would be the supercomputer uh, you run on, and you basically bake a universe. And you wait however many billions of years you want until you see a galaxy coming out, and you compare with real life, the actual images from you know the Hubble Space Telescope. Say, if they don't look similar, why don't they look similar? And of course, the first thought is, oh, I've stuffed it up. And of course, you check that <laughs> a lot of different ways and once you're sure of your your simulations that's that's really when the fun begins because then you get to say oh well what if i tweak the properties of dark matter or you know maybe stars explode in a different way than i think and that ends up being a really fun way to just come up with new descriptions for the universe and and really to learn about physics because astronomy is different to other branches of science we don't get to Set up the experiment, change it in any way, repeat it. I mean, the, the galaxies do what they do, and we can watch. But these supercomputer simulations give us a numerical laboratory in which we can actually test our theories, our our physics. So that was um, that was the second half of my PhD, and ultimately, it's probably been the one part in the year since that I've really spent most of my time doing. Basically, ending up in Australia to help uh, with the design, the construction of the Australian Square Kilometre Ray Pathfinder trying to optimize its design for cosmological parameter estimation. So that's that weighing the amount or measuring the amount of uh, mass and things. And at the same time, trying to do ever more detailed simulations to really just hone in on on what it takes to build a galaxy. And that, I can safely say, has been my obsession for now quite a few years.
0: (laughs) It's amazing because dark matter is at the heart of these simulations and it's something of which we know very little in reality or we haven't, been able to find what particles are involved and yet we can see the effects out there in the universe and you can build a simulation that follows certain rules
4: and uses this dark stuff and then it comes out kind of
0: like the real thing.
4: Yeah, it's remarkable that the basic properties of the dark matter, that it's um, collisionless and by that I mean it's, it doesn't really interact with normal matter, it's streaming through us right now, through the earth, it will just pass right through and, and you know, the vast majority of these particles will never interact at all. That, together with the fact that it's cold, and by that we mean that it, the particles don't appear to be whizzing around too fast, in other words, you can, there seems to be no sort of size limit on the size of a galaxy you can form. So for example, if you have dark matter being uh, hot, it's, it means it's a sort of relativistic particle, it's, it's moving very fast, before the, a region very early on in the universe uh, begins to collapse, it's slightly denser than other regions, begins to pull matter in, um, if the dark matter is too hot, those particles just whizz away from this collapsing region and you just won't form a galaxy on that scale. You have to then wait until there's larger clumps of matter beginning to fall in, and that will then set your uh, sort of minimum size of a galaxy and it doesn't appear to be too hot. It's um, it's not clear how cold it is, but this is just one of the ways in which you can try to learn about the particle nature of the dark matter. But as far as, as a galaxy is concerned, it seems to be remarkably uh, irrelevant what the exact particle type is, and, and which makes it very difficult because you're really trying to, you're, you're having to get to the real nitty gritty details of building a galaxy. You have to get everything else perfectly right to then start to be confident that if I change my dark matter model, I'll get a legitimate prediction for what this galaxy will behave. And there are some very clever uh, people out there working on this, and I'm fully confident that we'll uh, hone in on the particle candidate. Over these next few years, but I don't think anyone will actually believe the detection until you have it in the lab. In other words, perhaps the Bulby Mine, local reference there, but um, you can actually try to see the interaction of the dark matter particles very occasionally with uh, your detector deep underground. You're looking for a flash of light in the darkness, basically, and that will give you a uh, an idea of the exact particle type that this mysterious dark matter is. And yeah, at that point, I'm sure every simulator in the world will just have to rerun everything they have done, because it will be almost certainly be something we haven't considered before.
0: And are those experiments happening? I mean, are there also these large detectors sort of in the style of the neutrino detectors? Yeah,
4: it's very similar to, to a neutrino detector, um, and for for good reason. The neutrinos are also very uh, ghost-like particles. They just fly through normal matter, never interacting um, or very rarely interacting. The dark matter detectors are, yeah, they're built underground to shield them from cosmic rays. They're built of the finest sort of grade metals you can imagine. And um, one of my favorite facts is the um, that the lead in a lot of these detectors, actually all lead is naturally radioactive. I mean, everything on Earth is slightly radioactive thanks to nuclear testing. Um, <laughs> we have light covering everything. And that's the glow of that radiation would actually ruin your detector. You would not be able to spot the occasional dark matter collision with a normal particle in your detector because you'd just be overwhelmed by the radiation that's coming from your from the machine itself. What you need is metal that's come from a time before nuclear testing. And there just happens to be a lot of uh, Roman galleys on the floor, littering the floor of the Mediterranean, you know, been sitting there for thousands of years. And researchers have actually gone and taken the lead ingots from these trading vessels and used that lead. It's been sitting in this... Low radioactive state for thousands of years, you know, has been cooling down, sort of thing, radioactively speaking. And that is actually what they're building some of these detectors from. There are extraordinary lengths being gone to just to <laughs> get these detectors uh, as pristine and pure as you can do, to try to see the dark matter. But so far, we've not seen anything. And um, yeah, it's a real challenge. The Large Hadron Collider isn't going to see it. There's just no chance. But the way they may see it, if you know, nature is kind to us, is that Um, You know what comes in your detector. You know what's going in the collision. Your ATLAS experiment, the giant ring of detectors that surround this collision, will see everything that comes out of it except the dark matter. So what you would actually see in terms of dark matter is the fact that there's a little tiny bit of mass that's gone missing. You know what's Mm -hmm. gone in. You've measured what's come out. The tiny difference will, in fact, be the dark matter. And as I say, we're probably just not going to get to the energy levels required to actually see a dark matter particle being created, and it's sort of the lack of the mass being noted so unfortunately that would be the best way to do it the cleanest way to do it unless nature is very kind to us i don't think we'll get it that way well in the meantime you're talking about the square kilometer array that you're
0: working on the pathfinder for it's a a huge project uh, to build a radio telescope how will that constrain the properties of the universe and help to inform the sorts of simulations
4: that you look at so there's a few ways as befits such an enormous instrument um the classic way is that you uh, get to map out the position of the galaxies, and uh, for example, as I said, the the exact distribution of the galaxies lets you measure things like dark energy, this stuff that seems to be pushing the galaxies apart. I should say that correctly appears to be mm-hmm. accelerating the expansion of the universe. By measuring ever smaller mass objects, what you really want to see is essentially a dark galaxy, uh, an object that is so small that the gas just lies in this dark matter blob and is unable to form stars. Now that would probably be the smallest object you can imagine forming. So if you can see that, that will probably tell you what the smallest structure you can form and that will let you measure the temperature of the dark matter. So there's a few different ways. You can also do lensing experiments which is a a little bit trickier, although Banks is a bit of a, a leading expert in that. Measuring the bending of the light around concentrations of, of mass and that can actually sort of directly image the dark matter. Again, you compare that with simulations and you can actually start to constrain the nature of the particle. So there's this very nice circular experiment going on where the observations inform the simulations and then the simulations in turn inform the observers certainly what they may want to look for. At the end of the day, we have to be guided by the observations, but when it's invisible... (laughs) <laughs> it's, yeah, you need something else, and that's where the simulations really help.
0: And will the SKA be looking mainly at the hydrogen gas in the galaxies?
4: Yep, so the SKA will track essentially neutral hydrogen, H1, all the way back to essentially the redshifts of what are they called Dark Ages, which are at um, about 100 million years after the Big Bang. I mean, it's an incredibly ancient time. Um, it's called the Dark Ages because essentially there were no stars. There was just the nitrogen gas, so you can actually get a full family album snapshot of the of the universe going back all this uh, time. You get a complete picture of all of the local objects as you go progressively back in time. It becomes harder to see these objects; they're more distant, fainter, and that's when different technologies within the Square Kilometre Array umbrella will kick in and allow you to see ever further. And that's the kind of exciting and yet terrifying part of, of the square kilometer there are so many new technologies have to be invented and then somehow we have to deal with the data rates that pour off some of the numbers you know essentially we recreate all of the information that exists on the internet today and we do that every year without like, fail it mm-hmm. just keeps pouring off the instrument and what you're looking for is uh you know the the proverbial needle in a haystack but i mean how you pick out the signal you're interested in from that amount of data I have no idea. I mean, it's it's going to be a fantastic challenge, and it's one aware of some companies that are actually working with the astronomers to to solve this data challenge because they can see that the internet will keep growing, and eventually that will be useful for them, commercially speaking, to know how this works. Oh, you can search data volumes that size. So it's a real multi-generational challenge. There's a number of generations of astronomers will be designing, building, and, and operating this facility, but more so than that, it's a real society-wide effort where it's going to combine not just astronomers but computer programmers industrial uh technicians to just i mean how do you build three or four thousand dishes and distribute them around how do you power these things is it solar powered or you know is it going to be geothermal cooling and and there's just this list of issues and i'm not gonna say problems we'll say opportunities that the sk presents so at the end of it it's all to help us understand our universe that little bit better and uh I think it's wonderful that so many people are getting inspired to take part in this this grand experiment it is fantastic
0: well you came to give a seminar today which you haven't yet given which is unfortunate for me because i usually like to listen to it so i know what to ask but yep. uh, i've seen the the uh, the abstract of it and it relates to what you were just saying now the the dark ages of the universe and then this time the epoch of reionization where stars come along and light everything up and ionise all this hydrogen gas Mm -hmm. all over again so naively I was thinking well we we understand that stars just happen and then everything switches on it's great Uh, but as you were explaining this abstract we don't quite know all the details of the process so what is it that you're going to be talking about today
4: yeah so this is the real forefront of astronomy right now we've now seen so far back in time so distant in the universe thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope and facilities like that that we're actually running out of galaxies. And certainly the galaxies that we can see, these are the brightest objects. If they were any fainter, we couldn't see them. But these brighter objects, there's just not enough photons or or light that's coming from their stars to actually ionize the universe. And we know it's ionized. We look around and all of the gas that lies between galaxies is is ionized as a plasma. And we know that since the cosmic microwave background, some 300,000 years after the Big Bang, uh, the universe was neutral. That's just why we see it. It, it. The universe finally got cold enough protons and electrons to combine, giving you a hydrogen atom. Ever since that time, the universe is neutral. But of course, when does it become ionized? And we don't even know that. There's this period of around a billion years after the Big Bang, which we uh, loosely term the epoch of reionization. Reionized because the universe was ionized just after the Big Bang. But that's really all we know about it. All of these telescopes, all of these facilities, which are just coming online. They tell us that there is a very short window of time, uh, some 100 or 200 million years, and by astronomy standards, that's tiny, where the entire universe changes from neutral to ionized. We don't know what causes that. It could be stars from galaxies. It could be supermassive black holes that are very messily, accreasing all of the gas, pristine coal gas that's pouring into these galaxies, creating incredible quantities of radiation in the process, and that could be ionizing the universe. It could be dark matter itself, that actually uh, some candidate dark matter particles are their own antiparticles. When they meet, they annihilate in a burst of radiation, and that could also help. So there's all of these different theories. This days, the only way to sort of learn more is to actually do the kind of simulations that I mentioned earlier, where you have little model universe, you throw in all the physics you think matters, and you can ask these questions. Do you match the observations? You know, the, the biggest objects in your box, they look like what the, say, the Hubble Space Telescope sees. Unlike the observers, you're not limited in that sense. You know everything that's going on in the simulation. So you can then go, okay, well, maybe there exists a a hidden population of galaxies, dwarf galaxies. Um, and they could be doing this. They could be providing the necessary photons to ionize the universe. So uh, my talk, without any spoilers, is basically going to show that it does appear that the these dwarf galaxies can provide the necessary light that we will be able to see this actually with the successor to the hubble space telescope the james webb so in just a couple more years i'll be shown to be right or wrong um about this prediction most excitingly is we don't seem to need any bizarre physics like and, and bizarre in the sense of you know annihilating dark matter or or even these uh, quasars these supermassive black holes they're the brightest objects in the universe and right now, I mean, it helps if there's extra photons from them. That's you know, always going to do the difference. But right now, it seems that the galaxies, just very normal, small galaxies can do the job. And personally, I was a little bit surprised by that. And yeah, we'll see in just a few more years if if ultimately I'm correct. But certainly the simulations can then make predictions for other types of observations. And that's the exciting bit, because that's really when you put your money on the line and you go, okay, this is what you should be seeing with this telescope and blah, blah, blah. And- Coming to a radio center like Jodra Bank is exciting because the simulation program I'm part of, which is led by University of Melbourne, Professor Stuart Wythe, it's called DRAGONS. I have no idea what the acronym stands for. It's just Dark Ages, Realization, something. Yeah, he made us pick dragon names, so I picked Smog. So hopefully I won't get sued by Peter Jackson. But (laughs) the other components of this program are complementary types of simulations that one, you know, my hydro feeds into the next type of simulation, which feeds into the next... And ultimately, you make predictions for um, facilities like the Square Kilometre Array, which will see very large bubbles of of ionized gas around galaxies. And these bubbles, over time, will grow as more stars switch on. and You end up getting a, a universe that looks like Swiss cheese. And that's the kind of observational prediction which you need the simulations to tell you exactly how that should appear. And then you need these vast telescopes to actually then check that. So... Again, that really cool feedback loop between observers and, and theorists makes it Yeah, a very exciting time to to be an astronomer. You don't really want it to be any later, I think, because then you'll end up most of these things may be answered. Although I fully expect they won't be. <laughs> yeah, well, Almost certainly won't be. Just dig up more questions, I suppose. That's that's always part of it. Oh look, every great new facility, sure, answers some questions but always asks more, always poses more questions than it answers. And indeed, the Hubble Space Telescope itself, I think, I think it was, has only answered one question, or at least the top sort of 10 questions voted on by various astronomers. Only one of those questions was a, was something that was posed when they made the case for the Hubble Space Telescope. Right. Nine-tenths of all the cool science is done. It wasn't even thought of at the time. So this is why you build these big facilities and you make them flexible so that you can follow interesting new kind of uh, questions. And then... I think radio has it best with things that go, uh, bang in the night, like fast radio bursts mm. or pulsars, which seem to switch on or off or magnetars. Or, you know, the radio universe is a very dynamic, interesting place. When you up the scale of the telescope by a hundred times, just imagine what more you're going to be able to see. So this is where, again, keeping that in mind, I would quite like to start to make predictions for these next generation radio telescopes to just you know, get my two cents in there early on <laughs> yeah. and uh, see if I can sort of influence the design a little bit to maximize that potential scientific return.
0: And with the James Webb Space Telescope that you talked about, uh, that's an infrared telescope. So these small galaxies, uh, you're saying that it doesn't really matter how good your optical telescope is, that's not going to pick them up. You need to go to the infrared.
4: Yeah, so there's two things with it. You have that the, the light is redshifted in the sense that as the universe expands... Um, the wavelength of the light increases. So what was blue, ultraviolet light is stretched to the infrared. So when you look at these distant, distant galaxies in the infrared, what you're actually seeing is what they would look like in ultraviolet were you to stand right beside them. So the James Webb is, is really giving you the perfect look at the color of the light that you want for realisation. It's also vast. like It is an absolutely spectacularly large telescope, so large that it actually launches folded up and is designed to unfurl um, like a flower in space, which hasn't been tested before, but anyways. And that means, again, the the bigger is the more light that you capture and, and the fainter the objects you see. And it's really, it's the type of light, but it's also the sheer size of the instrument that means that it will uh, essentially supersede what Hubble has been able to accomplish. But there's still a case to have both because they are sensitive to different wavelengths of light. So I hope that Hubble will continue to survive for many years yet. That's fantastic.
0: Well... Let's finish off by talking about what you're doing now over on the other side of the world that we we hear a little bit about um that you've been involved in quite a lot of outreach activities on a fairly big scale things on national media and so on. So what yeah. what's happened how has that all taken off?
4: I've no idea uh, is the honest answer to how it's all taken off but yes I seem to find myself on TV now chatting about breaking news stories um trying to make make these fantastic science or discoveries uh, about space and astronomy understandable and more approachable. And also I do my best to try and sneak in some random cool facts that maybe aren't <laughs> included in the press release or anything, you know, but yeah, it's, it's fun. It's, um, it's now 50% of my role uh, at Swinburne is as a sort of an outreach person, which is just perfect. I get to do the science and then I get to talk about the science and I think that's, that's a dream. So it's, becoming ever more i guess focused on the media i still do a lot of school visits i'll be going back out to the the north part of wa of western australia um to speak to a load of schools out there which is fantastic and so i get to still do my school visits but yeah ever more my time seems to be sitting on radio or tv um getting to talk about these things and yeah i have honestly no idea how that's happened but (laughs) you know it, it does seem to be at least if something i'm not terrible at and certainly something that i enjoy so yeah that's going well somehow i ended up sitting on a panel show talking about doctor who as a national <laughs> science of doctor who tour that went around australia that was insane <laughs> i i have no idea how i ended up it seemed to be in my me- recollection of it, it's like getting this email going you like doctor who right and i'm like yes and then the next sort of memory is i'm sitting in front of 500 people trying to explain how um the Doctor's TARDIS works or you know, or at least, you know, possible ways <laughs> that might work. So yeah, it was uh pretty fun and I think the most exciting bit of that entire show was that at the end of it I was having all of these so younger people coming up, you know, 13, 14, whatever, um, guys and girls, and they were all dressed, usually they were wearing cool bow ties, Matt Smith style, Doctor Who. <laughs> um but yeah, they would come up and they wouldn't ask me about Doctor Who, they would actually ask me oh so tell me more about general relativity you know you used it to explain time travel how does this work and blah blah and that was that was an eye opener and uh yeah I, I want to do a lot more trying to bridge the gap between cutting edge science theories and the general public and if you can do that in, in a way that's entertaining that's that's got to be the perfect way.
0: Yeah well maybe the timing is just right I mean Australia's been part of the forefront of certainly radio astronomy and other types of astronomy for quite a number of decades but Maybe there's just a point where it really catches the public imagination. Something like the Square Kilometre Array must be perfect because it's happening right there, and it's going to hopefully draw in a lot of those young people.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. The um, the site decision was certainly um, widely publicized. I mean, yeah, most of my talks uh, I go to and I ask, you know, who's heard of the Square Kilometre Array, and fully half the audience will be able to put their hand up at that point. And it is this idea of a global effort to build a world-class facility and it's happening right in their backyard and in fact the cool thing about the square kilometer Array is that unlike visible optical telescope which is just usually one giant dish on a mountain miles from anyone these radio telescopes are actually distributed across the country so it's both Australia and South Africa will have these dishes dotted around they'll all be linked together to make this one world-sized telescope but it means that you go to these remote communities who would be perhaps passed by, I guess, not a lot of, you know, groundbreaking science, they know that there's a local baseline is, is supposed to be situated just a few years' time um, right by their homes, which I think is, just makes it become that more tangible, that more real for people. So you're right. I think it could be just a case of great timing in that regard, that there's a, a resurgence of interest in science and in particular led by this kind of a Monster new facility and like who doesn't love big telescopes, right? <laughs> That's also cool. Well,
0: it's great that you're well placed to just tie together the the real research side and and also the the popular understanding of it and and just making it like you said a lot more tangible. Thank you very much for doing the interview and hope the the talk will go as well as this. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, if you want to edit this afterwards, just make clear that it was a great success. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm just expecting some really, uh, really fun, tough, nasty questions from my (laughs) old colleagues. So, fingers crossed. Excellent. Thank you.
1: Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends.
3: So, I have an odds and ends, which is an update on a previous story, which uh, was featured in the November Extra Jodcast from last year. Last year, we talked about how the Indian Space and Research Organization launched uh, a mission to Mars called, in very simple terms, the Mars Orbiter Mission, or also nicknamed Mangalyaan. and the news now is that the Mars Orbiter Mission has now arrived at Mars. It was inserted into orbit on the 24th of September, and on the 25th of September, It even sent back pictures of the Martian surface. Cool.
1: I just think this is really amazing because um, the Indian team are the first team of scientists to ever have a Mars mission make it on their first try. Every other group who's tried to do this um, has failed a few times before they actually managed it. So I think that's really cool.
3: Well, it's also worth pointing out that only three groups have tried this before. The United States, uh, the Soviet Union slash Russia. And according to my material, it says Europe...
0: There was Beagle 2 as well, although that didn't make it.
3: (laughs) Well, that does not count then, because we're talking about being (laughs) successful on the first try, as opposed to just uh, being unsuccessful on the first try. The other thing that's worth saying about this mission is that it was a very low-cost mission. It was uh, only 74 million U.S. dollars in terms of cost. That is an awful lot of money. But on the other hand, it's relatively cheap compared to the average Manchester United football player. (laughs) It
1: cost them more to make the film gravity than it did to send the the probe to Mars. So I think (laughs) fake space costs more than real space.
0: And NASA's Maven mission cost quite a lot more, didn't it? The one that's also got there around the same time.
3: It cost a factor of 10 more. Wow. Uh, the other thing that's worth saying about this is that it is relatively inexpensive because they did not put a uh, lot of instrumentation on the spacecraft. So uh, the spacecraft itself only weighs 15 kilograms total. Wow. Uh, 15 kilograms. 15 kilograms. There isn't that much instrumentation on board, but uh, people have been very quick to point out they have one Very critical scientific instrument, which is going to play a small but very important role in studying Mars, and that is an instrument called the Methane Sensor for Mars. And what this is going to do is search for methane in the atmosphere of Mars. If they detect methane in significant quantities, uh, that may actually be a signature for life on Mars, since this would be expected to be a byproduct of the biological. Uh, actions of life processing organic compounds uh, for our energy.
0: Could that be life that was there before, or would it have to be life that's sort of there now?
3: That's a good question. Um, It is possible that it would have to be life that's there now, because uh, methane is a relatively light molecule, and it's hard to keep inside the atmosphere, and Mars is a relatively small planet, so it's... uh, it's lost uh,
0: some of the elements of its atmosphere over its history, by well, the way. Well,
3: even if you things. look at something like uh, Earth, it's uh, hydrogen, which can easily exist in molecular form uh, in Earth's atmosphere, uh, will escape Earth's atmosphere, or uh, some element like helium, which is also, again, a very light element, will escape Earth's gravitational field. Mars, being smaller, has this problem with even larger uh, molecules, So it's possible that uh, something like methane would not stay gravitationally bound. It would have to have been produced relatively recently by uh, some sort of biological chemical reactions.
1: Does it have to be biological to produce methane? Or are there there other things that could have produced it on Mars that would be independent of of life? That is a
3: good question, too. There could potentially be other processes that produce Mm -hmm. methane. the first trick would be actually finding it, though, which yes. is what this pr- probe is going to do.
0: Yeah, well, good luck to Mangalion,
1: was it? Mangalyan. Okay, so a few jodcasts ago now, we talked about waves being discovered on Saturn's moon Titan. That um, they had seen these little waves uh, on one of the great seas of Titan, the Cassini probe, uh, during one of its flybys, and they weren't really sure what they were about or what was happening. And so time went on. Uh, That that was in July. Um, So time went by and uh, when they flew by again, the next time the waves were gone. So they thought, was it just an anomaly or did we make a mistake? But it turns out that now they're back again. Cassini's latest look at Titan has revealed um, another mysterious feature in the Sea of Titan uh, in the same place. I think they spotted it in August and they're now trying to figure out what it is. Um, so the team that are working on it in NASA, they've suggested that it could be waves on the surface, um, or else maybe bubbles rising up from underneath, or something floating on the surface, or as they say here, perhaps something more exotic. Uh, so that's very exciting. <laughs> like, a,
0: like a little tiny surfer.
1: <laughs> like a little tiny surfer or a mermaid or something. I don't know. we a
3: new sushi restaurant.
0: <laughs> sushi restaurants
3: are always exotic. That is very
1: exotic. <laughs> <laughs> a lobster or something. I don't know. Anyway, they're very excited about this. And I think they're going to continue monitoring that bit of the sea to see what happens next.
0: At least we know it's something that comes and goes because I remember before they said it could be sort of uh, something actually sticking out that's just permanently there, but yeah. now they're saying, I guess, if it comes and goes, it must be something like a wave or, or like say something floating around.
1: Exactly, yeah. So uh, it's nice to think of a distant sea out in space with waves lapping on the shore, even though I'm sure. If you were actually on the surface of Titan, it wouldn't be anything like as hospitable as the picture that I have in my head. It would probably be no, awful. <laughs> no, it
0: wouldn't really be a picture postcard scene being no. a, a couple of hundred degrees below
1: exactly, freezing yeah. point. Exactly. I don't think you'd be going swimming. <laughs> and the
3: oceans are also made of methane, too, so it would be rather interesting... Yeah. (laughs) You go swimming in liquid methane.
1: A liquid methane sea. Yeah, that would probably be uncomfortable. Worse (laughs) than the Atlantic.
3: (laughs) By the way, just to go back to a previous conversation about Mars. Um, so the reason why Titan can retain a methane atmosphere and even methane oceans Uh while Mars may not be able to is just because temperature. Uh, you heat up, uh, the atmosphere and then your lighter elements can easily escape. Titan is cold enough that the uh, methane molecules are not going to escape as readily. Right.
0: I have a odd end about Bicep 2, which you might remember. And it's, uh, it uh, to, to, to coin a phrase, it kind of flexed its muscles um, <laughs> over the Antarctic a year or so ago, and it was an experiment looking at the cosmic microwave backgrounds, the radiation left over from not very long after the Big Bang, and it was looking for um, something that's never been discovered before, which is a measurement indicating the presence of gravitational waves in the early universe. And they thought that they'd actually discovered this, and they did it by looking at the polarisation of the background. So if you imagine the waves coming towards you, this was measuring, are they waving up and down? Or are they waving side to side? And that's the polarisation of the waves. And they thought they'd found particular patterns, the team that did the BICEP2 experiment, that showed that there were gravitational waves in the early universe, and it implied that the universe had this period of very, very rapid early expansion called inflation. And so this is a kind of key thing about cosmology. But unfortunately, since then, people have cast doubt on the result. And now the team behind the Planck mission, which is another one measuring the cosmic microwave background, have released a little bit of their polarisation data, which they're mostly still processing. And they've said that, yes, this signal that the BICEP2 team have found can be mostly, they don't know whether entirely, but mostly explained by uh, what they'd call a foreground of dust within our galaxy. So spinning dust in the Milky Way, causing a polarised signal that could be mistaken for a feature of the cosmic microwave background
1: oh dear yeah
0: well it's not over because they haven't released all their results yet and the thing is that bicep 2 looked at a little patch of the sky but very very sensitively Planck may not be able to pick up the same signal but it can look at the foregrounds the things that get in the way in more detail and they haven't yet released all their polarization data and it's only when they do that and they say they're going to work with the bicep 2 team it's only then that they'll be able to say for sure whether they've seen this real signal of gravitational waves or not but it it's one of those things where it's, it's looking a little bit less promising.
1: I think it's a it's a cautionary tale, really. You know, just don't get excited about things in astronomy. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> you know, get a little bit excited, but you know, with <laughs> with caution. Just you know, when there's that, um... that,
3: that's not necessarily true. There are some things where, uh, it, well, there are things. In my own research where I've gotten really excited, and they've turned out to be true and repeatable. Oh, yeah.
0: I um, guess the problem is if you excite a lot of other people. Especially exactly. via the media. Yeah, because so, there was a so big media build-up
3: really about no, this. Yeah. I, w- I would agree with that. So, yeah, definitely be cautious exciting mm-hmm. uh, the media and, uh, you know, the various uh, publicity engines. I think
1: tentative excitement is always appropriate when you find something new, but, you know, to <laughs> kind of snowball, rush out into the street and say, aha, well, oh, we found it, hooray! Um, <laughs> you know, no, usually not a good idea. <laughs> but it's
0: not, the the idea isn't dead yet. It could still be that Dust only explains part of the result, and, and they still have the evidence. But I'm afraid, again, for the final uh, conclusion to this cliffhanger, you have to wait a few more months. I think perhaps December is when it's supposed to happen, so it could be a, a good Christmas present or a Scrooge kind of moment, depending
1: <laughs> on what the final <laughs> you hear about is. it well, here if, in the Jodcast, anyway. <laughs> if they find
3: dust, a lot of our dust is made out of carbon, either uh, amorphous carbon or graphite. In which case, then, that's kind of an August call in some ways. <laughs> A lump of coal
0: for Christmas, if you haven't got your science results right. <laughs> well, keep listening, uh, and we'll bring you the news as it comes out. And now, looking at the foregrounds of our universe, here's the October Northern Hemisphere night sky with Ian Morrison.
5: The night sky for October 2014. Looking upwards... You can't fail to spot, assuming the light pollution isn't too bad, of course, a wonderful region of the sky almost overhead that comprises the constellation of Cygnus with its bright star Deneb, Lyra with its bright star Vega, and below Altair, the bright star in Aquila, the Eagle. And those three stars make up the Summer Triangle. But in fact, it's very well seen throughout the autumn months. Down to the lower left of Cygnus is the Great Square of Pegasus. Not so obvious unless it's relatively dark. The winged horse seen upside down. If you start at the top left corner of the Square of Pegasus, which actually is Alpha Andromedae, which is the adjacent constellation, you move across to the nearest bright star, fork round a little bit and go about the same distance, and then turn sharp right you'll find another star not far away, and beyond that, about the same distance, with binoculars, you should see a little fuzzy glow. And that's a view we have of the Andromeda galaxy. If you see that, the photons falling on your retina left there around two and a half million years ago. We're the number two galaxy in our local group. Andromeda is definitely number one. If you go back to that star where you turn sharp right and move the same distance again, moving down to the lower left, under very good sky conditions with no moon, you may pick up M33, in the constellation Triangulum, which is the third largest galaxy in our local group. Another way to find Andromeda is to move along the Milky Way from Deneb until you come down to Cassiopeia, the W-shaped constellation. If you take the higher three stars that sort of make a V and just follow the line of that V shape, arrow, downwards, that again will bring you to Andromeda. And finally, moving a little bit further along the Milky Way, taking the two central stars line along the Milky Way and going downwards, you should spot a little Milky Glow, which is in fact the double cluster in Perseus, two beautiful open clusters that make a lovely sight in a small telescope. So, quite a number of nice things to look for in the heavens. Well, of course, within the heavens, we see the planets. It's not the best month for planets, but it's not bad. Jupiter, shining at magnitude minus 1.9, rises at around 230 BST. It begins a month 7 degrees to the lower left of M44, the beehive cluster in Cancer. It's moving down towards Leo, which it reaches on the 14th of the month. By the end of the month, it rises well over an hour earlier, and a slight increase in brightness to magnitude minus two. Of course, as the Earth is effectively now moving towards Jupiter, the size of its disk is increasing slightly, in fact, from 34 to 36 arc seconds during the month. So you should easily see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it, and sometimes the red spot. The great red spot appears to be getting a little bit smaller at the present time than it used to be. Well, Saturn is well past its apparition. It can still just about be seen at an elevation of 7 degrees low in the southwest around an hour after sunset, but it will become increasingly hard to spot as it moves towards the sun in the evening twilight. It lies in Libra, moving slowly away from the wide double star Alpha Libri. Shining with a magnitude of plus 0.6. Have to wait for a few months until it will appear in the pre-dawn sky. Now Mercury, not often seen by people, it has a very favourable apparition in the pre-dawn skies towards the end of the month. By the 22nd, shining at magnitude plus 2 is already 11 degrees away from the sun, rising at around 7am and is 8 degrees above the horizon at sunrise. But of course, please do not attempt to look for it once the sun has risen. You could really damage your eyes. It reaches greatest elongation west on November the 1st, when it measures about 7 arc seconds across and is about 50% illuminated. Mars has been around for a very long time too, because as it moves eastwards, it manages to escape, going behind the sun. It starts a month in Ophiuchus, which isn't a particularly prominent constellation, although quite large. It moves into Sagittarius on the 21st. It's dimming slightly from magnitude plus 0.8 to plus 0.9. Its angular size drops slightly from 6 to 5.6 arc seconds. You could perhaps spot it as darkness falls. But given its low elevation and small angular size it's highly unlikely you'll see any details on its salmon pink surface. And due to its eastward motion, it sets around two and a half hours after sun for the whole of October. Finally, Venus. Venus rises about half an hour before the sun at the start of October with a magnitude of minus 3.9. But it'll soon be lost in the sun's glare as it moves towards superior conjunction when it passes behind the sun on the 25th. And again, we have to wait for a month or so before it becomes an evening object. Well, finally, what about highlights of the month? Well, there are a few. Uranus comes into opposition, which is when it's nearest the Earth, and basically due south around midnight on the 7th of October. So it can be seen well with a magnitude of plus 5.9. So binoculars ought to be able to pick it up. It's lying in the southern part of Pisces, to the east of the circlet asterism, the head of one of the fishes, and is three degrees south of a line joining fourth magnitude stars, Epsilon and Delta Piscium, as shown on the chart on the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website. And it rises nicely to an elevation of about 45 degrees when due south. And if you've got a small telescope, perhaps four inches or greater in aperture, it should be possible to see it's not a star, it actually has a disk, a sort of a pale turquoise green colour. 3.6 3.6 arc seconds across. And well, it is said that given an 8-inch telescope and very good seeing, or perhaps larger, it's possible sometimes to see some detail in the planet's cloud formation, which appear to be more prominent than is usual. On October the 17th, an hour before sunrise, Jupiter, having just passed into Leo, will be seen 10 degrees to the east of a waning crescent moon which will be a day or two after third quarter. And then between the 17th and the 23rd of October, in the early hours of the morning, perhaps between 1 o'clock and 5 o'clock, you have a chance to see some of the meteors that form the Orionids. They're in fact debris from comet Halley, which also produces the Eta Aquirids shower around the 6th of May. As its name suggests, the radiant of the Orionids is to the upper left of Betelgeuse in Orion and at its peak will typically produce perhaps 10 visible meteors an hour. So look roughly 45 degrees above Orion towards the zenith, it's probably the best place to look. A deck chair set low would probably be a very useful asset. On October the 22nd, 30 minutes before sunrise, you might see Mercury below a thin crescent moon. you need a good low eastern horizon it'll be seven and a half degrees below the moon now on october the 25th something that's going to be very hard to spot but interesting is a rare occultation of saturn by the moon a three percent waxing crescent moon passes in front of saturn which is shining at magnitude plus 0.9 the occultation will begin at 1659 bst although times vary a little bit across the uk and that's when it passes behind the unlit moon's disk. It takes about 80 seconds, in fact, for the disk and the rings to pass behind the moon. It will then appear later to the lower right of the sunlit edge at about 18.03, some 64 minutes later. Sunlight and the moon's low elevation, 12 degrees at ingress and just 6 degrees at egress, will mean this is quite a challenging observation. Now, if using a telescope or binoculars, the Saturn is occulted whilst the Sun is still visible, keep both well away from the Sun's position for fear of damaging your eyesight. Finally, on October the 27th, one hour after sunset, you may have a chance of spotting Mars just six degrees below a thin crescent moon. So, quite a lot of time to look at the heavens now. I hope you enjoyed.
0: Thanks for that, Ian. And now for listeners in the Southern Hemisphere, here's Claire Brotherton with what you can see in your night sky in October.
6: Kia ora, and welcome to the October Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. October sees our winter constellation of Scorpius, or Tamato Amaui drop down towards the western horizon, setting by midnight. As Scorpius sets in the west, his arch-enemy and our summer constellation, Orion, rises towards the east, along with Taurus and Canis Major. These constellations will dominate our summer skies, and we will look at them in more detail in the coming months. Mercury can still be spotted for the first week of the month, low in the southwest. Creamy yellow Saturn is just below Scorpius, and will set after around 10pm. Meanwhile, Mars continues its journey eastwards against the background stars, holding its position midway up the western sky after dark. On October 19th, 20th, Comet Siding Spring C-2013A1 will pass by within about 138,000 kilometres of the surface of Mars, more than 10 times closer than any observed comet has ever come to Earth. That's close enough for dust and debris from the comet's tail to potentially damage spacecraft orbiting the red planet. Whilst not likely to be visible to the naked eye, there is a chance that the comet may be seen with binoculars, and will certainly be visible in a small telescope. From our southern hemisphere perspective, it will appear to approach Mars from above and will be around 4.4 degrees away on the 15th, before slowly moving down past the planet and to the bottom left of the globular cluster NGC 6401 on the 20th. Also in our evening skies are Uranus towards the northeastern Pisces and Neptune higher towards the north in Aquarius. Unfortunately, both of these planets are too faint and too far from the sun to be seen with the naked eye, making them challenging targets. The brightest planet in our skies at the moment is golden Jupiter. Rising in the northeast at around 4am towards the beginning of the month, it outshines even the brightest stars. With binoculars, Jupiter's four largest moons can also be seen. 2014 has already been a great year for viewing our own moon. Following hot on the heels of three supermoons in a row, the October full moon gives us a spectacular total lunar eclipse. A lunar eclipse occurs when the moon is on the opposite side of the Earth to the Sun, at full moon, and the moon's orbit lines up such that the moon passes through the shadow of the Earth. Whilst lunar eclipses are relatively common, with at least two and up to five occurring each year, not all of these are total and not all are visible from any one location. This year, however, we are treated to two total eclipses, both of which are visible from New Zealand. Whilst the eclipse of the 15th of April occurred close to moonrise for us, making it harder to see low down on the horizon, New Zealand is perfectly placed for the 8th, 9th October eclipse, beginning around two hours after the moon rises. Unlike a solar eclipse, which can be viewed for just a few minutes from a specific path along the Earth's surface, a lunar eclipse can be viewed from anywhere on the night side of the planet, and can last for several hours each time. A lunar eclipse has two different stages as the moon passes through different parts of the Earth's shadow, the umbra and the penumbra. Because the sun is so large compared to the Earth, its light is only partially blocked in the outer part of the Earth's shadow. This is known as the penumbra, and when the moon passes into this part of the shadow, we see just a slight darkening of the surface. This penumbral phase will begin around quarter past nine on the evening of 8th October New Zealand time. The central part of the Earth's shadow with no direct sunlight is known as the umbra. When the moon enters the umbra, we see the much more extreme darkening that we associate with a lunar eclipse. On the 8th of October, the moon will first enter the umbra at 10.14 and will be completely within the Earth's shadow and experiencing total eclipse from 11.25 until 24 minutes past midnight. But the moon doesn't completely disappear during a lunar eclipse. We are still able to see it with a reddish glow. This is because light from the sun is bent and scattered by the Earth's atmosphere blue light is scattered more easily than red, so only the red light makes it through the atmosphere and is bent into the Earth's shadow. This gives the moon a reddish hue. This is the same effect we see at sunrise or sunset, when the sun is low on the horizon and its light has to pass through a large chunk of our atmosphere to reach us. The actual colour can vary from one eclipse to the next, as it can be strongly affected by dust and clouds in our atmosphere, particularly after a volcanic eruption. October is also a good time to look out for the zodiacal light, seen as a triangular glow in the west after sunset in a clear, dark sky. It is caused by light reflecting off dust along the plane of our solar system. This plane is marked by the ecliptic, the apparent path of the sun across the sky, which runs through the constellations of the zodiac. At this time of year, the ecliptic makes a steep angle with the horizon, making the zodiacal light easier to observe. The best time to spot it will be the week or so either side of the new moon on the 24th of the month. In the northern sky this month, we see Pegasus, the winged horse, which appears to leap across the northern horizon in our evening sky. Pegasus is easy to spot by the great square of stars that makes up his body. The brightest star in the constellation is Epsilon Pegasi, marking the horse's muzzle. This star is commonly known as Enif, deriving from the Arabic word for nose. Epsilon Pegasi is an orange supergiant, around 12 times the mass of the Sun, with a radius some 185 times larger. Nearby is the globular cluster M15, which at magnitude 6.2 is just at the limit of naked eye visibility. The cluster is located around 34,000 light years away, and measures 175 light years across. It is probably the most densely packed globular cluster in our galaxy with half of its mass concentrated within 10 light-years of the centre. With binoculars, it will appear as a fuzzy star, whilst a medium-sized or larger telescope will reveal individual stars, particularly towards the outer regions, appearing as chains and streams radiating out from the core. M15 also contains the planetary nebula P1, the first to be found within a globular cluster. At magnitude 15.5, this is a faint object, and a telescope with an aperture of at least 300 millimetres would be needed to observe it. The star at the bottom right of the Great Square of Pegasus is in fact Alpha Andromeda, or Alpha Rats, the brightest star in the constellation of Andromeda. Located some 97 light-years from Earth, it is a spectroscopic binary star with an orbital period of 100 days. Alpharats is a great starting point to star-hop to the great galaxy in Andromeda, or M31. The nearest large spiral galaxy to our own, M31, makes a rare appearance in our southern hemisphere skies at this time of year, but you'll need a good dark sky and a clear view of the northern horizon to spot it. From Alpharats, look for two chains of stars extending out to the east. Hop along the uppermost and brightest of these chains past Delta Andromeda to Mirac, or Beta Andromeda. Then turn sharp right and head down to Mu Andromeda before jumping on the same distance again to find the galaxy. The Andromeda galaxy covers an area around six times the diameter of the full moon, but only the brightest central region is easily visible to the naked eye or with binoculars or a small telescope. At 2.5 million light-years away, it is the most distant object easily visible with the naked eye, and is thought to contain around 1 trillion stars, well over twice the number estimated in our own Milky Way. Some recent studies, however, have suggested that the Milky Way may contain more dark matter than Andromeda, giving the two galaxies a very similar mass. M31 is approaching the Milky Way at 110 kilometres per second and is expected to collide and merge with our galaxy in around 4 billion years. We wish all our listeners clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory.
0: Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. We haven't had any posts, but we've had a couple of emails for this episode. Edward Kershaw says, I'm late to the party, but I've now downloaded all the Jogcasts and I'm working my way through. Thanks for such an interesting and enjoyable show. And I always particularly like it when people download the entire back catalogue and then listen to it.
1: A Jodcast marathon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Mike Nash says, it won't do to have all your listener feedback coming from down under. So here's some from British Columbia. And he says he enjoys listening to the Jodcast while walking in the forests of northern BC, which sounds really lovely. And he also bigs up Canada's Astro McGill podcast from McGill University, which is a little bit similar to the Jodcast. They do interviews with researchers, so go and check that one out. And also Mike said that he visited Jodrell Bank in 1969 and more recently visited the VLA, which for fans of really good acronyms is the Very Large Array in New Mexico. I hope you remember to turn your phone off, Mike, when you went there. That's all I can say. The VLA (laughs) is the one that's in um, contact when...
1: Ah, that's right, where Jodie Foster's out listening to space. Exactly. (laughs) Well, that's also...
3: um, So I went to New Mexico Tech for my undergraduate degree, so it's... uh, Well, the array itself is not near the university, but the Array Operations Center was on the university campus. so It's it's, a, uh, it's
1: kind of a place of pilgrimage, I think, for, for most astronomy PhDs, uh, radio astronomy PhDs, anyway, we're all supposed to well, go out there and see it at some stage. <laughs>
3: actually, it's, uh, I think, just a place to um, for anybody with an interest in astronomy to go visit. Well,
1: of course, they're welcome to.
0: And if anyone has a Jogcast T-shirt and wants to take a photo of themselves with their Jogcast T-shirt in front of the VLA, so much the better. And send it to us. <laughs> We also had a correction by email um, from Stella, who often sends in very uh, useful corrections when we make little mistakes in the Jodcast, and it was about me saying in a previous episode that an asteroid had passed closer than geostationary satellites to the Earth, and that was asteroid 2014 RC. Now, I said the uh, asteroid had come within 40,000 kilometres of the Earth, but as Stella pointed out, geostationary satellites actually orbit approximately 36,000 kilometres from the Earth's surface. However, we've checked carefully and in fact the asteroid was forty thousand kilometres from the Earth's centre at its closest point approximately and therefore was in fact less than thirty five thousand kilometres from the Earth's surface and so was closer than geostationary satellites. Um so thank you for that Stella. It seems you were mistaken on this occasion, but we all make mistakes, so don't worry about that
1: one. Um so thank you all for your likes and shares on Facebook. Uh, We love getting those, as usual. And um, we have a few tweets. So we have Edward Kershaw, um, who says, if you know a little bit about astronomy but want a friendly way of learning a lot more, try the Jodcast each month via iTunes, etc. So thank you, Edward, for... um, giving us a little bit of advertising there. That's great. And then we have a former Jodcaster chiming in, Jen Gupta, who says, hearing about astro seismology at the BAP conference, one of my favorite Jodcast interviews was with Yvonne Ellsworth on this topic. So thanks for that, Jen. And finally, Rob Mitchellmore, the Jodcast from a couple of months ago, asked my favorite interview question ever. Do you have a favourite wavelength? <laughs> that's a pretty good question. 21
0: centimetres for me. I think.
1: Oh, that's a really good one. I love that wavelength. Maybe that's
0: I've... too obvious an answer. Right well,
1: there. yeah, it's a popular choice. I
3: think I'd have to go with 250 microns given my work with Herschel.
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to go with 5 gigahertz, because that's my nice C band uh, gigahertz
0: I, isn't a wavelength.
1: Ah, uh, what's
3: that? <laughs> although I would have to say uh, my favorite near-infrared <laughs> color is K-band, which is uh, approximately 2.2 microns.
0: I'm getting confused. I'm just going to have to add to it by saying 10 mega electron volts. How's that for a wavelength?
1: Is that a wavelength?
0: No, it's an energy. No. But that's mine. Was the wavelength? High, <laughs> the problem is, high-energy astronomers use energies, that's which true. can also be converted yeah. to wavelengths. and that's true. Sensible people use frequencies,
2: and then well, you, you speak
3: for yourself. Oh, I'm a sensible person.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Most astronomers use wavelengths. Don't be biased by the other radio astronomers <laughs> who do this podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, rounding up that very nerdy conversation about wavelengths, uh, if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net
3: at twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast
0: on facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast
1: on youtube at youtube.com slash jodcast
3: on Flickr at flicker.com slash group slash jodcast
0: and don't forget you can always send us posts. The address is on the website. And that brings us to the end of the show. So it only remains to say thank you very much to Dr Alan Duffy for the interview. The editors were Adam Abisson, Sally Cooper, Indy Leclerc and Mark Perver, And the producer was Mark Perver. So until next time, John on!